Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Coming to you from my house, it's Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm an NPR pop culture correspondent and the host of Pop Culture Happy Hour. Our guest this week is Elizabeth Moss. You know Elizabeth Moss, right? June in The Handmaid's Tale, Zoe from The West Wing, Peggy in Mad Men. Hold on a second. You want me to work up an entire corporate image campaign for $10? I can make you do it for nothing. I'm the boss. You're right. The work is $10. The lie is extra. Incredible. What do you make a week, sweetheart? Mm, You don't know, huh? That's helpful. You know, I could fire you. Great. There's some portfolios in Joan's office. Maybe you could find somebody tonight. Why are you doing this to me? Because you're being very demanding for someone who has no other choice. (sighs) Dazzle me. There's something about the way Moss carries herself on screen, right? When she takes a lead role, especially. She has the confidence and poise of a veteran actor who's been doing this for decades. And that's probably because she has been doing this for decades. She's acted professionally since she was eight years old. And apart from a couple years in her early teens, she hasn't really taken a break. Her newest movie is called Shirley. Elizabeth plays Shirley Jackson, the real-life author of The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. Here's the premise. It's the early 60s. Shirley is living in Vermont with her college professor husband, Stanley, played by Michael Stuhlbarg. Their marriage is struggling. Shirley's reclusive. She struggles with depression and anxiety. Stanley, for his part, is a serial womanizer who doesn't really take Shirley seriously as an author. Then they take in some guests, a young TA of Stanley and his wife. Things escalate, get more tense. But in the midst of all the drama, something else happens. Shirley finds inspiration for her new novel. Let's listen. I have a title. Hangs a man. It's about that girl. The missing one. The Weldon girl. What do you think? Well, you haven't said much. It's just an idea. I can try something else. Disappearing college girl sounds trite and a bit trashy, but uh, give it a go. I'll read, of course, before you wade too far in. It's going to take some time. Give it to me in a couple of days. It's a novel. Oh, no, dear, that's... You're not... You're just not up to it. You're wrong. Darling, you haven't been out of the house in two months. You're barely able to put on a pair of stockings. Ease back. That's all I'm saying. Elizabeth Moss, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So the relationship between Stanley and Shirley, as you as you hear it in that clip, is really intense. But most of what you learn about it comes from scenes like that where they're talking about her writing. Mm. In general, it's I think it's really hard to make writers talking about writing interesting. <laughs> how did you how did you approach that problem of, of making people understand a character based largely on, on writing that they're not getting to read? Um, you know, you have a, you have a script written by Sarah Govins, honestly, because I do think that what, what you're saying is absolutely correct. 
I do think it's actually really difficult to do. And the way that she wrote this script, somehow it just wasn't a problem. You just, it was somewhere between a biopic of Shirley and one of Shirley's stories itself. You know, she really, Mm -hmm. she really balanced that so well. And you're right. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Yeah, the scene in which Stanley finally reads the draft of the book, I I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but it's the very rare scene that felt totally original to me on an an emotional level. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about the approach to what Shirley is thinking in that it's initially kind of an ambiguous scene. You don't know exactly what's going on. You're looking at Shirley's face. You're looking at her reactions. Is that kind of the, the pivotal scene for Shirley, do you think? Yeah, definitely. It definitely is this opportunity to kind of show in in one scene one of the most important things about her, which is that she cares more about her work than anything else. The only thing she cares more about than her work is what Stanley thinks of her work. And Uh we had this one scene and this one sort of opportunity to show it. It wasn't written that it was all going to be in that one take and that we were going to stay on that close-up we or shot, we, uh, you know, covered it, but it was just the way that the way that Josephine ended up cutting it, which I was obviously very um, flattered by. But I think it's right, because I think you have to show all of the emotions that someone like Shirley would feel in that moment, the fear, the um, being angry at herself for being nervous, being angry at Stanley for making her nervous really desperately wanting him to like the story, you know, all and then covering it all up when he walks over. I mean, you kind of had to show all of those those bits. It's the genre, darling, that's stymieing you. It's not your arena. And frankly, it's beneath you. Keep your theories to yourself. You didn't know her. Don't tell me that I do not know this girl. Look, I might have walked by her a dozen times on campus. There's nothing fascinating about this girl except that she's gone. What has she done? You don't know your subject. She's a nothing. Who is she to you? There are dozens and dozens of girls like this littering campuses across the country. Lonely girls who cannot make the world see them. Do not tell me I do not know this girl. Don't you dare. For people who haven't read the novel that this is based on, which is by Susan Scarf Merrill, how would you explain the relationship between this Shirley Jackson and the the actual biographical Shirley Jackson? Well, I think it's hugely fictionalized. We uh, obviously left her children out, which is a big, uh, a big thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she was uh, actually a, a wonderful mother, even even though she was dealing with, you know, mental illness and and addiction. And um, she was a wonderful, wonderful mother by all accounts. And we, you know, for the purposes of the story, they they, they weren't in it. Um, so that's a huge departure. Uh, I wouldn't look too closely at the timeline of things in our movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a little bit nonlinear. But I think what we were trying to do or what Sarah, the writer, was trying to do and what I loved about it was it was just this sort of slice of life. I feel like you could make five movies about Shirley Jackson and Stanley, like their whole lives. What I felt like this was was just a little bit of a slice of her. It was it was this it was her writing process. 
and her writing process yeah. specifically at that time, which was the lottery had just come out. It was hugely successful. She all of a sudden was famous and was also experiencing infamy because she, you know, a lot of people wrote a lot of hate mail about the lottery. It was very divisive. And here she was embarking on this sort of sophomore effort. And it was so it was about that process as a writer. Had you read a lot of Shirley Jackson? I'd only read The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a common duo for people. Exactly. I feel like that's like the Shirley Jackson 101. So then, yeah, then I had the opportunity to obviously go and read, um, I believe, most of her work. I might have missed a couple short stories at some point, but um, I believe I've, I've, I've become a little bit of an aficionado. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk a little bit about madness. I think it's hard to look across your career, particularly post-Mad Men, and not see this theme of women and madness. It's there in Shirley, and it's talked about pretty explicitly, but it's also there in Her Smell, it's there in Handmaid's Tale, it's there in Us, maybe most explicitly in The Invisible Man. Sometimes women who are kind of driven to madness, some of whom have their normal responses defined as madness. It's always hard for me to know what to make of those thematic echoes, I guess, in actors' work. What do you, what do you make of them, if anything? Um, I guess I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of madness and I'm fascinated by, I, I haven't answered it. I don't have the answers, but I'm, I'm very fascinated by the questions and I'm fascinated by the idea of when we start categorizing, especially a woman as crazy. And obviously mm -hmm. the invisible man dealt with that a lot because that was actually just a, a straight up story about gaslighting. But right. I think there's other things that I've done, like you said, that deal with it um, in, in different ways, whether it's her smell with addiction and, or with with Shirley and her incredible imagination, um, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the question of at what point do we start calling this person crazy? You know, are they crazy for just being honest? Are they crazy for thinking that this guy is after them and trying to kill them? I don't know. I I, I don't have the answers. I just find the questions really fascinating and. Um, and I think as well, it's just much more fun for me as an actor to play somebody who's losing their mind than it is to play somebody who's happily sitting at home with their two cats like I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're also, a, you're a producer on Shirley, as you are on Handmaid's Tale, and as you have been on some of the other projects that you've done in recent years. What What are the big benefits of producing for you? Honestly, the number one benefit is I have so such a better knowledge of the material and the character um, as a producer. I think that's the thing that people don't necessarily uh, think about. And often I have to kind of maybe explain at the start of a process that it's not about me going, I want control, I want ownership, which is probably the second reason that I love it. And sort of certainly nothing to be uh, ashamed of. But I think, especially as a woman in this business, but I think the number one thing for me is I actually learn so much more about the project that we're doing by being a producer on it. I, I have conversations with the writer that I wouldn't have had. I, I have a relationship with the production designer. I have a relationship with the director that I wouldn't have had. I know why we have cast this person. I know why we are shooting in this location. I know why this color is chosen for this wall. And for me, that actually just informs the character that I'm building. And it gives me this deeper, more hands-on knowledge of the material. I've done projects where I am not a producer. 
obviously many, 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 many times in my career. And honestly, I think the ones re- recently that I've done where I'm usually a producer, I find I know them so much better and I know that mm-hmm. character so much better. Um, so for me, it's actually informed my acting in a way that I don't think I expected. Yeah. It's interesting that you talked about the the visuals and colors and things like that, because I think particularly in, in The Handmaid's Tale, that's been such a, a big part of the conversation around that project. And, you know, very often as a, as a viewer, when I'm first confronted with some of the visuals in that show, like some of the handmaids in Washington this last season who had the rings in their mouths, those are really jarring visuals. Do they ever freak you out a little bit? Mm. No. <laughs> no, not in a not in a bad way. I I I you know, quite honestly I love that. In fact, it's funny with that the I don't know what you would call it. I can't remember what we would call it. The, the, the sort of stapling of the of the mouth together mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm, did on the show. Mm-hmm. One of my notes on that episode, on that cut, was to hold that shot longer. Um, yeah. So we could really see it. So the audience could really, was confronted with that image for a couple of seconds longer. I just thought that was important. So I, I love that stuff. I have, I'm, I don't have a lot of um, fear of the darker things in life. I, I relish them tr- quite truly in work, not in my everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no question. I mean, those images are meant to be jarring. It means they're effective. But I often think like when I watch a scene where, you know, there are all of these people surrounded by women who are dressed in this way or, you know, at the Lincoln Memorial or whatever, that it's just a, it's a lot to take in. And I, it, it always seems like it would be an intense experience to to act in as well. Yeah, it's definitely intense. I wouldn't say I sort of just like, you know, um, mop around with a smile on my face like a maniac. I, it's definitely intense and, and I and I feel it. But I but I think that that there are things in life that are intense. And I think that, you know, it was so interesting to I mean the memorial stuff was mm-hmm. probably yeah, probably one of my most enjoyable and also intense days of shooting. Shooting that scene, those scenes in the Lincoln Memorial, this place that has been built to celebrate human rights and celebrate freedom and and what this country is supposed to stand for and then whatever thing was happening in the news that day <laughs> i'm sure yeah for sure from the the one the, the house down the street you know it was really affecting and and i think that i feel but i feel sort of privileged i guess to be in the position to tell that story and to be confronting with an audience in that way so how has the experience of Handmaid's Tale been different from the experience of Mad Men? They obviously have parallels in that they are both they've both been really successful, they're both really buzzed about, they're both really, you know, well regarded. How do you compare those two experiences? I assume the being a producer makes this one very different. Are there are there other things that are either parallel or not so parallel? Yeah, I think being a producer is one of is probably the biggest um, thing. It's odd to me now to think back actually on Mad Men and how 
um, sometimes I get asked questions about it and I'm like, I don't know. I wasn't a producer. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how that went. You know, I mean, it worked out fine. <laughs> I didn't need to be a producer on that one. Everyone did a great job, but, um, <laughs> so, you know, it worked out all right. But I think that's the biggest difference is the involvement. I mean, you know, on Mad Men, I would go in for my work and then I would leave and, you know, I'd, I'd work four days and then have three days off. And, and, and now as a, as a producer and especially on Handmaid's Tale, I'm there every single day, every single hour. And when I go home, I'm watching dailies or cuts or writing notes. Um, at different periods, we have, you know, six, seven episodes that we're working on at the same time. And I basically, it's kind of only get like a month off in the year when we're really actually not in post or not in prep or not in production. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Did you, did you have a, a specific kind of post Mad Men career strategy or was it mostly uh, kind of one project at a time? One project at a time. No strategy <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> um, I've never really had a strategy. So I kind of am like, if it ain't broke, you know, I think the only thing I kind of thought was that I would maybe not do a TV show uh, again so quickly. And look how well that turned out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I blew my own strategy out of the water. I yeah. guess I just, you know, yeah, I, no real strategy. I never had one. I just look for the good material and try to get them to cast me in it. <laughs> what makes something pop out for you as good material? Are you envisioning yourself? Are you envisioning yourself acting in it? Are you, does it, does it just resonate on a pure script and writing level? What pops out for you as I really want to go pursue this? I want to go and do this. I think for me, especially over the last few years, as I've gotten the opportunity to choose what I want to do, you know, in the beginning, you're, you know, you're just, you, you're doing the jobs that you, that you get, you know, you got to work and you got right. to make money. And so you're just doing the jobs that you, that you get hired for. And then I guess over the last like five years or so, I've definitely been able to be more choosy. And I think the thing that I look for is is purely 100% the script. It doesn't matter. And nothing else matters. It has to be a good script. And I guess what makes it a good script for me personally, besides just the obvious thing of it's like interesting and good to read and well-written is uh, the how I guess I think maybe it might be right for me is I start to kind of do it in my head. I start to think about what it would look like and I start to say the lines in my head or maybe even out loud. I start to kind of play the character a, a little bit, not like out, not like in my apartment, like a crazy person, but just in my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that for me is the connection that I, I look for now um, as far as what, 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 is, what should I do personally. It was interesting to me watching you in The Invisible Man because I had never seen you in quite that pure of a of a thriller. And as we talked about before, it's really a gaslighting and madness story. But the other thing about it for me, to be honest, was the fact that it has such effective uh, fight scenes. Mm. And the trick is whenever you have someone fighting an invisible person, it can look incredibly corny. Yeah. It can look like the cheapest special effect in the world, which is I'm fighting an invisible monster. Yeah. But these are incredibly scary and unsettling fight scenes. 
I've seen a little bit of a featurette about the guy in the green suit fighting with you. Can you talk a little bit about the choreography and execution of those fight scenes? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that was, I mean, that's basically what it was. It was this incredible stunt performer in a green suit that I worked a lot with, that I rehearsed a lot with. We did a lot of, uh, I wouldn't call it training. I mean, I'm not like, you know, there's not Tomb Raider over here. It's just, we did a lot of like practicing the the moves and practicing the, and working it out, working out what the fight would be, working out what would be scary, working out what I could do, what looked scary. He was fantastic. And um, then came, there were times when I did have to do it by myself for visual effects. And I'm telling you, like, that felt so stupid. I can't even, <laughs> it's so embarrassing, like having to f- pretend to be fought. It's just the worst. I hope that never happens to anybody. It's the, it's so embarrassing, but mainly it was, it was working with him and, and yeah, it's not that, it's not that hard if you're actually like working with somebody and pushing it and pushing against someone, you know? Right. So the difficult parts are the parts where you're just, it really is just you. Yes. And thank God that was just for visual effects so that they can have like that pass. Cause I don't know, for some technical reason that they need it. Um, right. that, that's the only time I actually had to do it by my, by myself. Cause it really does feel stupid. I had to do one thing once where he's like, grabs my neck or something. And that was just me doing it. And I felt like such an idiot. (laughs) Hated it. There you are. That invisible guy gave you a pretty good beating, put you into the fridge, dragged you around. I know. I know. It was it was it was really fun. Honestly, it made me want to do an action movie. And I'm actually trying to try to figure something like that out. It was so fun. It was so fun to be so physical, to use my any strength I had. It was fun to get stronger, you know, to 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 like work out and take care of my body in that way. And I really I, I had such a great time. And it was very difficult because I am not a stunt performer. Um, and I'm actually not even an incredibly athletic person, but it was, it was kind of great. (laughs) I loved it. Yeah. You were a dancer for a long time though, right? Yes, I was. So I guess I shouldn't, I'm not, I'm not an athletic person anymore. I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I have to assume though, that it, that when you're trying to figure out something like that, it's, it's probably an advantage to the people who are coordinating it to be working with somebody who uh, has done choreography before. Actually, yes, you're absolutely right. And you know, the one thing that actually really helped my ballet training was we had this special camera that we used that I'm going to forget the name of now because I've been doing press for six hours, but it was uh, a camera. It was very, very cool. And it operated on counts, specific counts. So the choreography, yeah. So the choreography of the fight, this, this, it would, the, the camera would, or whatever was it was, would count out loud. So it, and one, and two, and three, and everything was on the counts. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I did this forever. Like I could do this. I can remember. Okay, that I'm supposed to raise my arm on, eight, you know, on, on eighteen and a half. Like I can do that. It was very yeah. interesting. I, I never thought that that skill would come in handy in such a way. <laughs> yeah, it's because I, I've never heard of a I've never heard of a camera that uh, that counts out loud. I know. I mean, someone if 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 anyone's listening to this and wants to text me what that camera is called, it would be very much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I I do want to play you since we're talking about your your acting history and your dance history. You started acting very young, right? Yeah, I was about six. And you know when I looked you up on uh, when I looked up your IMDb page, which of course is a very uh, imprecise and uh, imperfect way to to survey someone's career. Unlike a lot of people who start acting when they're six, there aren't big gaps of sort of stopped acting, you know, disappeared off of the the out of, out of that business for long periods of time. You seemed to kind of bridge all of that pretty successfully. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there was a period when like 12 to 14 when I didn't act it much that much because I was given I was it's a very formative time for a dancer. Um, uh, right. And you're auditioning for schools and it's 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 crazy that it's that young, but it is. And so there was a time from 12 to 14 when I don't think I did as much. Um, but yeah, I guess I pretty much steadily, steadily kind of worked. Not in, not on a lot of stuff that people saw, but I was working. <laughs> Well, and then, I mean, I think I remember, I think I probably first saw you in the West Wing. That's not a bad, that's not a bad place to spend a few years. No, it was certainly not a bad place to, to work. It was uh, really, I mean, I was 17 when I started that show and it was incredibly formative in not just my career, but in, in my idea of how you are supposed to be on set. And how, um, you know, every single one of those actors was so professional and so kind and funny and took their work seriously, but not themselves seriously. And I think that that really kind of taught me how you're supposed to be. And I fell in love with I fell in love with television. Yeah. Can we listen to a clip from Suburban Commando? Um, I think we have to listen to a clip from Suburban Commando if you have one. Absolutely. Yes, I'm so glad. Oh my god. So this is one of your <laughs> this is one of your first movie roles. This is 1991, Suburban Commando starring Christopher Lloyd and Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan plays an alien whose spacecraft breaks down. I love this description. How is this it's the real? best logline ever? Hulk Hogan plays an alien whose spacecraft breaks down and he gets stranded on Earth in the Los Angeles suburb of Van Nuys, rents a garage apartment from Christopher Lloyd and his suburban family. It's a vehicle for Hulk Hogan to to uh, lift and throw heavy objects. And in this scene, a young Elizabeth Moss is playing a little girl who keeps losing her cat in a tree. The alien comes along to rescue the cat, but sends her flying through the air instead. Let's roll the clip. <laughs> Again? My cat! Are you sure? Positive. <laughs> Bye, kitty. Uh oh. Thanks. Get a goldfish. All right. What do you What do you remember about Suburban Commando? I I'm so glad we're talking about this. I um. I remember everyone was very nice, including Hulk Hogan. And I remember taking it very seriously um, and treating it, you know, not dissimilar to the way that I treat The Handmaid's Tale. It was very, sure. it, you know, obviously it was a, it was my first, I think it was my first movie, my first real move, my, you know, my first picture, my first studio film. 
I'd done a TV movie, I think, but I think it was my first uh, feature. And uh, I took it seriously. I mean, it was a, you know, big deal for me. And it was big stars, Hulk Hogan, very big at the time. Christopher Lloyd, obviously a legend. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I took it, I took it just as seriously as I would take anything, anything now, honestly. It, uh, that's my, mem- my, that's my memory of it. My memory of it is I took it seriously. Of course. Why would you not? I think it's, re- I think it's reflect. I'm pretty sure it's reflected in the work. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back and look at it, you're going to, it's going to be like watching Claire Danes in uh, my so-called life where you say it's a, she's going to be big yeah. right there. That girl who lost the cat, she's going to be big. Did you, is it true? Because I can't remember where I heard this. Is Were you a voice in a Frosty the Snowman cartoon? Yes, I was in Frosty Returns. Frosty Returns. Yes, which... Took um, that seriously too? A hundred percent took it seriously. And that was with um, John Goodman. Oh, well. Yes, and he played Frosty. I mean, how cool is that? I couldn't sit in there anymore, Holly. I started getting a cramp. Then I got this freezer burn. You shouldn't be out here. No, I think I finally found a place where the snow is here to stay. An ice castle. Won't be there for long. What are you talking about? I just came from my school. All the kids there were screaming, no more snow, no more snow. It was terrible. What did you say? Nothing. I was too scared. Whenever I try to talk, my mouth gets all dry and my hands get all clammy. I let you down, didn't I? You know, kid, maybe it's time you tried a different approach. You weren't playing around with these early roles. I really wasn't. I was like, let me just pick out like all these like legendary men. John Goodman, I'm from, my mom, I should say, my mom is from Chicago. I've spent a lot of time in Chicago. I mean, I'm a big Chicago Cubs fan. And so obviously working with somebody like John Goodman was very, uh, you know, it's a big deal. It's a big deal in my family. Mm-hmm. I think big deal in every anywhere, everyone's family. Yes, the star of many a beloved film. Of course. For my family. So I, that way, I remember meeting him at the recording studio um, on, on that one. We'll have even more with Elizabeth Moss when we come back from a quick break. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm James, host of Minority Corner, which is a podcast that's all about intersectionality. It's hosted by James with a guest host every week. Discussing all sorts of wonderful issues, nerdy and political. Pop culture. Black, queer, feminism. Race, sexuality. News. You're going to learn your history, their self-empowerment, and it's told by what feels like your best friend. Why should someone listen to Minority Corner? Why not? Oh my God, free stuff. There's not free stuff. The listeners of Minority Corner will enjoy some necessary LOLs, but mainly a look at what's happening in our world through a colorful lens. People will get the perspective of marginalized communities. I feel heard. I feel seen. Like you said, you need to understand how to be more proactive in your community, and this is a great way to get started. Join us every Friday on Max Fun or wherever you get your podcast. Minority Minority Corner. Corner. Because Because together, together, we're the majority. It feels like nothing in the news these days makes any sense. So Hassan Minhaj turned to his father and his faith for answers. He said, don't worry about the number of questions, just worry about which questions become more clear and solidified. Comedian Hassan Minhaj on how his spirituality is getting him through. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Linda Holmes in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Elizabeth Moss. She's starred in a bunch of movies and TV shows, Mad Men, The Invisible Man, The Handmaid's Tale. Her newest project is a movie called Shirley. In it, She plays Shirley Jackson, the horror writer, the author of The Lottery. The movie comes out this week. Let's get back into our conversation. Another thing I want to ask you about, you 
you are not just a meme. You are multiple memes. You are Handmaid's Tale memes. You are also Mad Men memes. Did you, are you aware? Did you were you aware when you were shooting Peggy Olson coming down the hall with the box and the shades and the cigarette? Do you shoot that and think I'm going to be looking at this for the rest of my life? No, <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, I I had no idea. We didn't have any idea. I mean, it was so. Um, it was completely unexpected. I knew it was a big moment for the character and I knew that it was something that, uh, I was proud of. I'm sorry. I'm getting a piece of cheese and you're going to have to hear it. That's okay. Um, I'm starving. (laughs) Get your cheese. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, I knew that it was a big moment for the character, but no, I had absolutely no idea that it was going to be this, this meme that, that, that it became uh, like, it's crazy. <laughs> I remember at the time, my main focus was very much holding all of that stuff, um, trying to make them, trying to get them to make the box as light as possible because I'm <laughs> lazy. And I was like, I just make, I just kept making them take things out of the box. And they were like, we want it to be real. And I was like, yeah, I don't. So take things out of the box. Um, and then I remember like trying to keep the cigarette in my mouth. It's actually very difficult to walk and keep a cigarette in your mouth like that. I don't know how James Dean did it. And and, and then the, the it was like a lot of to do walking and that also looked cool. Uh, <laughs> so I remember that. <laughs> but you didn't know when you were shooting it because I, I remember watching that episode live and thinking as I was watching that episode live, this is a this is a famous shot from Mad Men right here. That's so funny. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like we just, I mean, you know, it wasn't even her last scene. It wasn't her last shot. Like we just didn't necessarily, nobody did. Nobody thought about that, about it that way. You know, I I listened to uh, an interview where you talked about Mad Men making it possible to be seen for uh, more roles, but also then having to demonstrate that you could do a lot of other roles. Are you basically now out of that period where people associate you with a particular thing? I guess so. I think that, yeah, the the, the first thing I did after like getting kind of known for a character was Top of the Lake. Originally, Jane didn't want to see me for it because she could only see me as Peggy. And um, the incredible casting director, Christy McGregor in Australia, who I will be forever grateful to, basically had a, we had a drink in LA and sh- and I showed up and I looked so different from Peggy. And she said, can I, can I take a picture of you? And I was like, sure. So we took a picture of me and sent it to Jane and basically was like, this person does not, this person is not Peggy. Um, and it was her support of, of me that, that helped to get me that role. And, and that was the first time I did something that I, I kind of, um, felt like I had to prove it to myself that I could do something other than Peggy. I mean, I knew I could, I knew I wanted to, but when you become well known for a character, it is daunting to, to go outside of that. That, I I think that kind of pushed me out of that box, um, during Mad Men. And so I didn't necessarily have the same kind of uh, problem that somebody may have coming out of a long running show like that because I had done this thing in the middle of Mad Men. Right. I also am not somebody who really cares. 
I don't really operate from a place of fear when it comes to the to the roles that I do. So I, I don't I just don't really worry about it too much. I you know I I consider myself a person who is an actor who plays different characters who doesn't just play one character and and that's it. Like I I didn't really get too bogged down in. Um, oh, I can never play a copywriter again, or I could never play somebody in advertising, or I could never do a period project again, or something like that. I don't care. Whatever's challenging me as an actor is, I guess, what's the most important to me. Yeah. Is there is there anything right now that you think, I've never done a role like XYZ that you're interested in doing? I mean, you talked about, you know, things kind of making you think, I want to do more action, I want to do different things. Is there a wish list, or is that asking for trouble to have a, a wish list as an actor? Um, I generally don't have like too much of a wish list just because I do like to be surprised. But I think as I've gotten to a place in my career where I'm, I'm developing um, more material and I'm, I'm producing almost everything I do, um, I've started to look at that. And, and for me, there's a couple things. One, I really want to, after playing June, who's such a heroine, although a complicated heroine and a flawed one, right? I really want to play a villain. I really want to play. Um, I want to play the bad guy. I want to play the antihero. That's something I'm really interested in, and I am actually really interested in exploring an action film or something in that space. I think that I love those kinds of movies. I'm a huge action movie fan, and so I. Which ones do you love? Oh my! What are your favorites? All of them. I mean, the entire uh, the the Born franchise. Mission Impossible franchise, specifically the the later Christopher McQuarrie films. I love all the, you know, Atomic Blonde and Salt and Tomb Raider and like, uh, you know, all the ones that have our, our women as the as the heroes. Um, you know, obviously those have a special place in my heart as a woman. Um, I, I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been on a huge action movie kick too recently, I think because I'm sort of working on developing something in that space. So um, I, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really into that right now. <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of hand fighting in those movies. Yeah, a lot of hand fighting. I love the idea of having to like train for three months or whatever. And like, I love the idea of having like, like crazy back muscles, you know, <laughs> Yeah, you're living like, that you're living that Marvel superhero life. Yeah, exactly. I like look at like like I you know, look at like Shirley Snaren's back and I'm just like I want that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go do that. But I know myself and I know I'll never do it for myself. It'll only be for a role. I was watching Her Smell just last night, actually. Cool. And for people who aren't familiar with that, you play a uh, a rock star who the, the film is essentially told in a series of five uh, vignettes. And the middle one in particular is is really hard. I mean, it's difficult to watch in the sense that it's very you know upsetting because as you spoke about earlier, she's dealing with addiction and some other issues. But I did watch that one thinking I that seems physically exhausting. And is that I'm I'm curious about whether that kind of performance is is physically exhausting. Yeah, it is. I would say her smell her smell even maybe above the invisible man was the most physically challenging role I've ever done, which is kind of crazy considering the fights and the stuff in Invisible Man and all that running, which was just out of control. But there's something about 
um, the mental and emotional and physical state of, of Becky in that movie that was actually challenging. And I'm not, I'm not one to, you know, I hate when actors say that something was hard because it's like, no, it's not. And you're getting paid and it's elective and you're fine. But I will say that that was, that was challenging. You know, it was, the lot that we were shooting a lot in a short amount of time, you know, it's a small movie and it was producing as well. And, um, a lot of dialogue, um, a lot of crazy dialogue that didn't make any sense. But if you said it one word wrong, really didn't make any sense. So I would say that, yeah, that, that, and that act in particular, I think act three is the one you're talking about. The, the red, the, I call it the, the red act, like the one that's, where she's mm-hmm. really unhinged. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was physically kind of challenging. <laughs> hey, you're actually suing me, right? Or is that somebody else? I'm suing. They'll see you in court. I called to the stand. My mother, Mrs. Anya Adamczyk. Mrs. Polinska. Mrs. Adamczyk. Do you swear solemnly that your daughter was born with a rare neurological condition that renders the passage of time an enforced illusion from the external world? Judge, please. I just can't seem to get going till later at night. You think I want to be late? Those people deserve a show. She's just constantly coiled. She's constantly moving. She's either moving or about to move. And and that was um, a bit of, it was also very hot. I don't like the heat. It was very hot. <laughs> you might have gathered from before we started this podcast. I, I don't like the heat. And uh, I, it was just hot. It was so hot in that set. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, you know, it's the it's the red. It is the red uh, segment. Yes. And, and the set was built brilliantly to be slightly too small. So those hallways were built small. Oh, and the yeah. Ceiling, yeah. Yeah, yes. And the ceiling was built low to give you that really claustrophobic feeling. And we have our DP and camera operator, Sean Price Williams, who's like six something and not a small man. And he's like literally bout and it's all handheld. And he's literally bouncing off the walls on the set. Like there's no room. There's no room for like the 12 people that we had in there. I'm going to bounce back for one second to early jobs just to make sure. Just to make sure that you've embarrassed me thoroughly. (laughs) Not at all. Are you kidding me? I'm just going to go back and make sure that we've completely covered all the things that could possibly embarrass you. Not at all. Not at all. You didn't talk about Escape to Witch Mountain. We didn't get there. That's one of my uh, early favorites. Tell me about Escape to Witch Mountain. Escape to Witch Mountain is a Disney classic. A Disney classic. I, I, I know it is. Tell me about your <laughs> your uh, love of Escape to Witch Mountain. Again, took it very seriously. And I remember um, there were two boys, you know, a boy who played my brother and a boy who was like this other guy. And, you know, I was quite young and there were two boys on set. It was very exciting. Um, uh, that's what I remember. <laughs> I remember the boys. Sure. <laughs> hey, squash it. <laughs> Stop! You promised no more bullying. I wasn't bullying. It's new game, so you made it up. You okay? I'm Danny. Do I know you? 
did you start? How did you start acting that young? The story goes, legend has it, uh, according to my mother, I was doing a production of The Sound of Music at my first ballet school. And I was playing, I think it's Gretel, Greta, Gretel, I don't know, the little one. Yeah. The littlest one. And uh, I don't know why the we were doing Sound of Music at my ballet school, but we were. And an agent came and saw this little recital at this ballet school in the valley. Um, and she said to my mom, does she want to, does she have any interest in acting? And my mom was like, do you have any interest in acting? And I was like, sure. And she, she kind of just kept checking with me. You know, we'd go on auditions and I'd get something and I loved it and I had a great time. And she kind of just kept going, you know, you still like this? You still want to do this? And I did. And then, and, and here we are. Yeah, well, and like I said, you seem to have, to have navigated the, the, the transition out of child actor uh, much more easily than than many. Well, I think that part of that is I, I have given that some thought. I think part of it is that I wasn't famous. I wasn't su- mm. you know what I mean? I wasn't particularly successful at a very young age. My my career sort of I was allowed to grow as a person into at least a semi-adult before anyone knew who I was. And I think that really was very, I think that was very, very helpful. I think dealing with that kind of fame at a young age, I think is um, incredibly daunting. And so I didn't have that. And then my first job that anybody really cared about, um, besides like, I guess, I guess I did Girl Interrupted when I was 15 or 16, but I had mm-hmm. makeup on, so you, nobody knew what I looked like. And then my first job in the West Wing was like a show for grownups, you yeah. know? So I just never really became a child star or anything. And I think that that really, that really helped. Yeah. How do you feel about being famous now? Um, I think that I'm not the kind of famous that I think, I I don't know if I would love, you know, the kind where you really actually can't leave the house or you can't, or you're followed by paparazzi. I'm not followed by paparazzi. Nobody cares. Um, You know, I think that, and I, I, so I, I don't have that kind of, Fame. I, I can't say how how difficult that might actually be to have that. So I feel like I'm in a pretty lucky position. People seem to like my work. They recognize me. They like the shows that I do or the movies, and they they say nice things. And that's pretty much as far as it goes for me. And so I, I guess I'm still kind of lucky in that in that respect. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth Moss, thank you so much for being here with Bullseye. Hey, it is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Elizabeth Moss, everyone. If you want to see Shirley, it's out June 5th. It's on Hulu and it's in select drive-ins. And if you haven't watched her in Invisible Man, let me tell you, it's creepy and she's great in it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around various parts of the country. Here in D.C., I'm missing everybody, but my indoor herb garden gave me a basil leaf as big as the palm of my hand. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. 
Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Mine is thanks, Jesse. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.